and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church and we hope to be meeting in a new building somewhere in the Los Feliz area very soon in 2021. We are in a new phase of lockdown life. The first Sunday of each month will be a live Zoom service at 10.30am. Do join us for those. We found it to be pretty soul-restoring to get together in a way that feels real, virtual as they may be. The other three services of the month are paired down, consisting of just a talk and a song of worship. We plan to provide you with more online worship and teaching resources, and to pour our energies into more personal connections. We're praying for you, and we're here. Enjoy this week's podcast. Hello. We're back. Figuratively and literally, we are out of the woods, under blue skies, taking deep breaths. We're back in LA and we're very, very happy to be here in an Airbnb. Not quite our home yet, but it's great. Can I just let you know a couple of things in case you missed this week's email. Next Sunday, the 28th, from 12.30 for a couple of hours, we're just going to be meeting for a social distance, of course, uh, gathering on the Autry Museum for no other reason just other than to see each other's faces so especially if you're new, if you've started to come into Bread um, since we've been meeting online, can we give you an extra special uh, invite to that? Um, so do join us if you want to. We'll be there for a couple of hours. Can I also remind you that Book Club is starting this week uh, on Wednesday from 7 o'clock on Zoom. Please sign up online. You still have time to order your book and read the first chapter and introduction um, and join us for that. We do see this as something that's not just for a select few who feel called to this issue. This is a church-wide issue and we want everybody involved in the conversation. So please, if you see yourself as a part of Bread, do consider joining us for that. It's Roadmap to Reconciliation by Brenda Salter McNeil and we expect the conversation to be brilliant. Finally, Super Small Groups have finished their sort of run um, just this week gone and um, in a few weeks we'll be starting a um, emotionally healthy spirituality course in their place. We've introduced this material before but we've never covered it in detail and we're super excited about it. It's going to lend itself to a Zoom format really well as well so do come along and it's going to start on Tuesday the 9th of March again for about six weeks. We are starting a new series called What Difference Does the Church Make? The American Church isn't currently showing off its best side I think it's fair to say and we wanted in please God these last weeks of online church to remind ourselves what exactly we as a church as a matter of calling and as a matter of sound gospel doctrine are here to do. We thought that the old chestnut of the book of Acts the story of how the church began would be a great place to start. I think we can quite readily look at the New Testament church and perceive that it's got really nothing to do with us. I mean, we're looking at Acts 2 today, that's the tongues of fire, speaking languages that they don't know, 3,000 coming to faith in one day, and all the believers having everything and sharing everything in common, sharing their possessions and giving to everyone as they need, meeting every day in the temple courts. We're looking at that bit today, and I think it's easy enough to say, hmm, none of it sounds very practical for 21st century life. I mean, also, high COVID means gathering and sharing possessions is akin to putting people's lives at risk, but also... Meeting together in daily in, in temple courts, didn't anyone have a job to go to? And also, hi, we're Californian, we know how commune life ends. STDs and prisons, that's how it ends. And we dismiss all this otherworldly, or as otherworldly and irrelevant to our context, but as we do that, we miss so much about our calling as the people of God. 
and actually I think we miss uh, so much about why we're missing it because we don't or we are not aware of the cultural lenses through which we are viewing it. The idea of selling everything and sharing everything is impossible, not just because it's impractical, but also because we live in a culture that worships the idol of the individual. In the first century context, this concept simply didn't exist, much less have an idol to it. The individual didn't really have any meaning at all in an ancient Jewish mindset. To them, you are who you are in relation to your family, your ancestors, your culture and your history. So the reality is the gospel doesn't really directly address our worldview head on. It's on us to do that. So that's what I want to do a little bit of this morning as we look more in detail at the origins of the church in Acts. And you'll probably know the backstory here. Jesus has risen and he's let the disciples know that he's about to leave them. And they're all still, yeah, but you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel, right? You're going to make our people the greatest, right? And he's like, hmm, I mean, we've been through this. It's not for you to know the times or dates of all that. This is what is going to happen, though. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit arrives, and you're going to build my kingdom another way, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he goes, Jesus leaves, and they wait in Jerusalem like they've been told. And then Pentecost happens, the day that the church is birthed with all of this drama of the arrival of the Holy Spirit, massive power like a great wind and floating fires. And significantly, the disciples start speaking in all of the languages of all of the Jews that have traveled to Jerusalem that are around them um, in this area. And they hear this and they stop and listen. I've actually heard of this happening in several times in present day ministry settings when somebody is praying for someone else in the power of the Spirit. Um, and unbeknownst to them, they start praying in the mother tongue of the person that they're praying for. Wouldn't that be wild? If there was any uh, more clear demonstration of the inclusion and ethnocentricity of the gospel, I mean, yes and amen to that happening in our church gather gatherings. But so they are speaking all these languages and they preach the most brilliant and inspiring stuff because they're so full of the Spirit. And let's look now at Acts 2. It's from verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Remember that these were the people who had recently called for Jesus's execution. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A virus outbreak like the one that we have been living with for nearly a year, did you know, has probably done more to show us the reality of what it is that we as a society value more than anything else in most of our lifetimes. An outbreak is, of course, by definition, a collective problem. 
a communicable disease would be totally cool if not for the community thing. The massive issues that we have had nationally over wearing masks, protests and rallies in defiance of lockdown rules, refusal to curtail travel and share data to help with tracing, these are all rooted in the ways that we see the world. We in the West do not do collective, we do me. My rights, my business, my privacy, my battles, my solutions, me. Even and perhaps especially the Christians. My parents live in Taiwan. Taiwan's handling of COVID-19 is, as I'm sure you've heard, a pretty awesome success story. A preemptive response to potential spread, swift and extensive lockdown early on despite relatively few cases and it worked. My parents walk around every day and have done for some time. They go to church, to friends' homes, to the cinema, they shop, they congregate. Did I mention the cinema? And aside from a recent blip when a doctor treated a newly arrived traveller and caused a mini outbreak which spread little further because so many people wear masks out of choice anyway, they have no COVID in Taiwan. Life in 2021 is as it ever was. And there is yin to this yang. There are very strict rules around travel. My mum returned uh, there from the UK last fall to her compulsory quarantine with a really quite strict uh, threat of punishment should she had left her apartment at all. She turned off her phone one night as uh, she planned a digital detox and within an hour she had a policeman at her front door demanding to know why her phone was no longer traceable. And I think that can feel a little bit offensive to us, a little bit sort of scary big brother. But Taiwan, like I'm sure you know, many places across the East has had a very different outcome to this pandemic, in large part because they have a very different attitude towards the collective and towards an individual's role in the greater good. Mask wearing actually happens in Taipei, the capital city of Taiwan, year round. And it had done pre-pandemic just because whenever you feel remotely unwell and you're going out, you put a mask on in case you pass something on to something at someone else. And that there's data around this to show us that this is not just about the way societies are governed. I think for us it's very easier to think this is just because they're happier with a different system of government. The data shows that these cultural roots go far deeper. They go into our individual thoughts and our feelings and our behaviours. They impact very deeply. Here, via pioneers, cowboys, Herbert Hoover and the spirit of self-reliance, Individualism has been celebrated as long as these states have been united. For America then, a sense of self, validated, free and able, is what we have built our realities around. In Eastern collective societies, they have been built around other things, around the greater good, about being a member of a whole. And this is a total tangent, but I know a number of us at Bread are second generation East Asian Americans. So how interesting is this to stop and think if you've ever experienced a clash between the culture of your family and the culture of the land in which you now live. I was brought up in Singapore and in so many ways I experienced this in the reverse. But I know there, And I know these are hugely sweeping statements, but it is so fascinating to stop and think about what these clashes are really rooted in to the very core of how we are culturally indoctrinated to see ourselves. And I am not necessarily valuing one thing above another per se, but Western cultural values are a driving force away from what the gospel calls us into. And for many of us, we need to stop and see this. 
The story I'm about to tell may sound like a peculiarly British outworking of individualism, but I tell it just to point out how deep this stuff goes, even in the face of other driving forces. It was an event that has haunted me ever since it happened when I was about 22. So I'm in London and I'm on the tube with my friend John. Now what I need to do at this point is to tell you some things about the tube that you might not know. And actually I'm doing you a bit of a cultural service, Americans, because you are renowned for not really understanding how it works on the tube. So, first thing to know, you don't engage with anyone else. You don't look them in the eye, you don't talk to them, you don't interfere in whatever it is they're doing. If you're traveling with someone else and you need to speak to that person, you speak quietly. You don't affect anyone else around you with your conversation. They shouldn't even hear you. It is also important to know, because this happened on a Saturday, that between the hours of about 7pm on a Friday and 8am on a Sunday, everyone on the tube is drunk. We happened not to be drunk, John and I, but we were completely accustomed to the, normalised to the reality that most people around us were. So it's Saturday early evening, John and I are on the train and we're sitting next to each other and it's quite full but not too full um, and we're sitting in the middle of the carriage and onto the train at the far end um, in the space that's kind of at the end of the carriage steps a drunk man, an especially drunk man and he in his especially drunk way barges into, stumbles into a couple who are canoodling. Now, I can say canoodling because I'm now over 40. And another thing that you should know about the tube is that it's a kind of a point of London pride that you don't fall over. Only tourists fall over and we mock them silently without looking at them or speaking to each other. But this, this man who had been canoodling, this lady, was extremely cross about uh, that what had just happened, how he'd been bumped into, and a full fight ensued. And so these two drunk men, one especially drunk man and another a bit drunk man, are hurling their fists around and the woman that the man is with is shrieking and every single person between where we are halfway down the carriage and where these people are floods to the other end because of course they should not get involved in what's going on it's nothing to do with them eventually drunkest man lands a swift punch to the chin of less drunk man and less drunk man falls to the floor then drunkest man goes for the lady friend who has not in this time stopped shrieking and that's when something clicks in me. We should not be watching this. We need to help this lady. She has, for several seconds now, been fending off the flailing arms of a man who is significantly bigger than her, and she's going to get hurt. We must not stop it. We must not watch this. We must help. And yet, we are all glued to our seats. There is some force in play in our minds, in our cultural realities, that says, this is none of my business. And all of us are doing the same thing, which is nothing. A whole train carriage of people, not one of us stands up to help. Eventually, when she gets hit, I, I grab John's arm and I say, do something. And he does, like he needed my permission. And I don't in any way count myself as a hero in this situation because I asked somebody else to step in and solve it. But as soon as he does something, like three or four other men run to her help as well. And then they subdue the man and, and everyone gets off at the next station. And John gets a little round of applause, which is very unusual because, you know, the whole not engaging with each other thing. 
But for everyone that stepped in to help, they didn't do it until they were sort of given a direct instruction. And it has always stayed with me because what hit me was that much as I believe that I'm brave and that I'm wired to help someone else in need, and I really do believe that that's true about me, that there was something else, some other stronger force at work that was gluing me and gluing everyone else to our seats. And it was a force that said, there's nothing I can do. It's nothing to do with me. I'm just an individual sitting on a train watching the world go by. City life especially, I believe, numbs us to need, doesn't it? There's that famous instruction to girls under threat of nighttime attack. If you're in a city neighbourhood, that you should, yell, you should yell fire, not help, because that's what makes people run to help you. If we see need all around us also, how are we to know when it's on us to help? And I guess that's perhaps a wider question. But for me, that experience served a clear message and it's something I've thought about so often since. The force of individualism is potent and pervasive and it hates that I am responsible for anyone else's pain, that I am part of a greater thing, that I have a role within it. The forces of individualism tell us daily, loudly and clearly, I am not connected to anyone else, my remit is myself, anyone else's trouble or injustice or poverty or hardship has got nothing to do with me. It is, I believe, what has made, us so, made it so hard for us to deal well with this pandemic and what is at the root for many white people of talking about and addressing the ongoing legacy of slavery and racial apartheid in this country is so damn difficult. Our church is infected with this cultural poison. The place that is called undeniably and without equivocation to connection, to care for the downtrodden, to reconcile the divide, to fight for justice, and it is time for us to talk about this and to address it and to show the world. The world who only knows our fallen celebrity pastors and our bigotry and our role in this historically awful division. To show them something else. One of the big threads in this brilliant conference on discipling out racism that we have been attending as a staff team is that we need to remember that the gospel is both horizontal and vertical. We are largely down, I believe, with the vertical part in the mainline Protestant American church, that we are made in Christ, that we are his handiwork, that we are personally loved and created with purpose and that we are unique, each one of us. We do not for one moment believe that this part is not important. It is vital to our understanding of the gospel that we are loved and unique and that we are given personal, intimate relationship with our Creator. This is how we are ever to experience and enter into any of this. We receive grace freely, personally. We receive status as his children, his heirs, his beloved, his image. And in doing this, we realise it is received in order to be given away. This isn't easy or simple or comfortable, but everything that we receive from God in the vertical is to be experienced and lived out in the horizontal. In Christ, individualism is an illusion. 
because what I have and what I have received is no longer about me. It is about where I now belong. In Christ, we don't need to worry about our sense of position or our self-validation. In Jesus, we know that the resources are infinite. The space for us all to thrive is never ending. In Jesus, I win when you win. Imagine a world when this was our real lived experience in our workplaces, in our personal relationships. In Jesus, we are who we are as individuals, so really and clearly. We have so much love coursing and grace crossing through our veins that there's no room left for what about me, for what I deserve, for what I am owed. My turn doesn't seem to matter anymore. In Jesus, we are so clearly and keenly aware of what we have received because of grace that we never ever need to worry about someone else taking advantage of it. We never need to worry about anyone else's need to work harder or give more or, you know, do their share. Bootstraps don't exist in Jesus. Or rather, we're a community who just should throw them around. Bootstraps and more bootstraps for anyone. Doesn't matter whether you pull them up yourself or not. We all have everything we have only because of grace. In Jesus, we are given full membership of the community, not because we've earned it or deserve it. And we're given it in order to give it away, not to take from it, in order to serve, not be served. We show our power and our ability and our superiority and our status by giving them away. We don't operate under the same systems of power and this nonsense of leader reverence. I'll make you a deal. Don't put us on any sort of pedestal and we won't act like we're on one. The church in the West has been plagued by leadership idolatry for quite long enough. Do you not agree? Leadership in, the gospel, in gospel terms is service. It is being the first one to arrive to put out the chairs, the last one to eat, and ultimately the one who lays down his or her life to build this thing. That is the leadership model that we follow. In Jesus, power looks completely different. We'll see more of this over the series, but this is what the early church was known for. The decentralization of power, the disruption of structures, unity not based on just all getting along, but on revolutionary responses to inequity and to prejudice. It did peacemaking that was nothing like peace and quiet, like the peace that an elementary school teacher or a mum with loads of kids at home the peace that, that, that those people yearn for, like the sort of sense of no trouble, no noise, everyone just happily getting on with their assignments. Kingdom peace is actually pretty damn rowdy. Kingdom justice is rarely calm and it's rarely swift. It flows like a mighty river because that's what it needs to be that in a world that looks so different. None of it's passive, none of it's neutral. It takes a stand, it is loud, and it is always coming after the ones who need it. This, I think, is about as offensive, a foul and unattractive message that I can imagine preaching in this town. But really, we're lying to you if we don't tell you that this is what the kingdom of God looks like, and this is how membership works, 
that you are here at bread, as we always say, on your own terms, and you can receive and you can give nothing. But it's our responsibility to be very clear with you about what it looks like in the kingdom and to keep calling you into it. To Jewish people on the day of Pentecost, what was happening is nothing short of incredible. Remember that previously coming near to God's presence was something so powerful it could kill you. His glory, his raw presence, his Shekinah, it was called, that used to dwell in the Holy of Holies in the temple, was no longer far off, hidden behind a veil. God's presence was here and it was falling on them, filling them, every one of them. And it says this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Before all of this incredible sharing collective thing that happened in the early church was the greatest outpouring of the spirit that has, that has ever been. And it's what enabled it all, the selflessness and the power disruption and the peacemaking and the justice bringing. Really, everything I have said so far is just about correct kingdom doctrine. And correct understanding is super important but these things aren't the things that change lives. The living, present, Holy Spirit is what changes lives, and it is he that makes any of this possible. If you haven't been to a service at Bread, you may not know that it's our goal to include him at every level of our service planning and our service experience. We believe that the church is his, it's his plan, it's his problem, thank God. Each service is his, and we try to create a worship experience where, while making beautiful music, our goal is not to create a set. Our goal is to remain fluid and movable as the Spirit leads. It's why that we also make space for prophecy, and it's why that we often spend time just waiting on Him. There is no point to anything that we do without the Holy Spirit. And this is where I know so many of us are just desperate for real services again, because receiving the Spirit is um, its an experience that is just a lot more difficult to have in power when we're not together. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult. And I know that a lot of us are bone weary in our desperation to experience him together again. Believe us, Ed and I are no different. And we're supposedly the professionals. But it does make total sense that we're feeling like this. I imagine some of us actually do need to be reminded today that this sense of exhaustion in our faith is completely understandable because we're not supposed to be doing any of this without the experience and the power of his spirit. Please know that we're doing everything that we can to prepare for a time when we can meet in person again soon. So I'm going to pray. And I know that you might be in your car or watching this alone in your bedroom or you might be out on a hike and um, we should just remember that none of these things are a hindrance to the spirit. He blows where he will. So why don't you open yourself now best you can. Tell him he's welcome. Ask him to meet you. Tell him that you need him. What I'm actually going to do is start with a prayer of repentance, which you feel no obligation to pray with me. Best not to pray these, pray these prayers until we feel personally ready for them. But I think it's quite important as we look at this stuff that I know affects so many of us so deeply. Come Holy Spirit. 
Father, we are sorry for the ways in which that we have let the world invade our understanding of who you are and what you call us to do. I don't suppose there are many of us in Los Angeles who are not guilty of this to some degree. Thank you that you understand everything of our experience, that you have compassion, that you have grace for it. But we say as a community that we don't want to play by these rules anymore. We want to know what it is to be part of a greater whole where we belong in order to give ourselves away, where we know we have received so much that it doesn't even feel like giving. It just feels like the most free and blessed thing we could be a part of. We know we have a long way to go. We also know, Holy Spirit, that this is your work. This is your thing. This isn't our burden. This isn't something we can try to do better at. This is the work of your spirit and we ask you to meet us now. All of us, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, come Holy Spirit. You know where we are feeling so weary and desperate for a touch of your presence. Thank you that your voice is never accusatory that it's always gentle, it's always kind, and it calls us back to you, to the peace that you bring, to the love that knows no limits, to freedom, to belonging, to acceptance, to being your heirs, to having a part of this incredible story of your kingdom. and bless what you're doing. If you're able to, why don't you just stay in this position as we uh, listen and worship along with this song. God bless. Bye. All who are thirsty All who are weak Come to the fountain Dip your heart in the stream of life Let the pain and the sorrow be So